Jeremiah 17 shows us two kinds of people. On the one hand, you have the kind of person who is like a shrub in the desert, who is withering, who has shallow roots, who can't stand it when the heat comes. He's lonely. He's parched. On the other hand, you have a man who's like a tree planted by the stream, by the water, who's strong, whose leaves never wither. He does not fear when the heat comes. Whatever he does prospers. Which are you? Which are we? We want to be a congregation who's planted by the stream, whose roots are deep in the gospel. And so this week, we lean in toward the third vision of our church. First was resting in worship. The second one was growing in community. The third is rediscovering our calling, roots for transformation. How are we to understand our calling in this world? What does that mean? Let's look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 42 down through verse 51. If you're willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. And therefore... You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has sowed over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. William Stagg is the author of a children's book called Yellow and Pink. But it's hardly a book only for children. The book begins where yellow and pink are two wooden figures laying down in the hot sun on newspaper. And they sit up together and look at each other and they say, where are we? What are we? And Pink launches in with his version. He says, well... Undoubtedly, some artist must have made us. Look at us. And Yellow says, nah, we just happened. A branch broke off. We tumbled down the hill. We got struck by lightning. And then insects and woodpeckers bore holes in us. And Pink goes, well, how come we look so alike and yet we're different? And these two begin to have this philosophical conversation about why they exist and what their purpose is. And Yellow starts attacking Pink and he says, oh, you're full of it, just relax. I, some things are just left to mystery and we will never know why. And just then they see a man lumbering up to them and he shouts out, oh, 
nice and dry. And he picks them up and sticks them under his arm, and they walk off. And the book ends when yellow looks at pink, and he goes, just who is this guy? <laughs> and this children's book opens up for children these fundamental conversations about ontology, about why we exist, who we are, who made us, what our purpose is, about how we are to spend our time. And all of Jesus' parables in Matthew 24 are about time. And this one in particular has a very simple message. It tells us that we do not know the time of the Lord's return, only that he will. And therefore, as human beings, in our age, we are to be the ones who are vigilant about carrying out our responsibilities as God's people, doing what the Master has called us to do. And Jesus, isn't it interesting, associates himself in this parable with a thief to communicate the surprising nature of his return. It will catch you off guard. As off, as off guard as you might find yourself if you walked into your kitchen to find somebody there trying to rob your house. It's a very startling image. But Jesus is calling all who can hear him and all of us to answer the question, how are we to spend our time? And there is a universal impulse in every man, woman, and child and myself to use the time that God has given us for our own exploitive purposes rather than for the purposes which God has given to us. And the reason why they become exploitive is quite frankly, we do not know how we are to use our time because we really don't know why we are sent here with much specificity. If this were a class, I would ask all of you to pull out a piece of paper at this point and say, would you take one minute and would you write out what is your calling in life? Not your wife's, not Christianity in general. What is your particular calling in life? What has he given you to do? How are you to live a life fully devoted to him in the ways that he has particularly called you with your unique gifts, abilities, and experiences? And to get there we have to answer some important questions about the nature of this doctrine of calling. What is the doctrine of calling? Why do we need it? How do we get it? And what does it give us? If you have your Roots Journal, please open up to week three, and you'll find the notes for the sermon will all be in there. What is calling? Why do you need it? How do we get it? And what does it give us? Are you ready? Every one of us has a general calling upon our life because if you're in Christ, then your calling is very simple. In a general sense, God calls us into his kingdom to lead lives of love for others in service to him. And when I say he calls you, I don't mean your occupation or that you're a student. I mean he calls you with a very particular calling. It's not your job. That's an over-secularization of it. And it's not kind of this vague notion of his guidance over you. That's an over-spiritualization of it. Every one of us has a calling upon his life. And that calling, first of all, assumes that there is a caller and that he is knowable. 
And if you don't believe that there's a knowable caller and you're here, I'm so glad you're here. Keep coming. You're going to think that your life is constructed around your preferences, your, what you can know and not know. It's around your own orientation, what your mind can conceive of what is true and what is not true. And if that's you, thank you for being here. Please keep coming. But I'm going to assume for the sake of the argument that, that we believe in a knowable caller who has called us out. And when God calls us to himself, he calls us to himself in three ways as Christians. He calls us upward into a relationship with him. This is your conversion. He calls you to himself and to his people. That life at its deepest level is relational. That is, it's covenantal with the Lord and with his people. That's an upward calling. But secondly, you have an inward calling. God has called you into his kingdom to lead lives of love. He's called you, not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, not your mom and dad. He's called you in a particular way with gifts that he has given to you. We saw last week in 1 Corinthians 12, and you see it in Romans 14, many members, one body. All these members have different functions. And his calling to live a life of love is a joyful process of self-discovery of how he has uniquely made you. And thirdly, he calls you in an outward call to go out. God calls us to his kingdom to lead lives of love for others in service to him. To lead lives in service to others. That is your third calling. And sometimes this calling is not very attractive. I... I Setting up chairs for worship is not very attractive. Going up to another meeting at work is not very attractive. Doing expense reports at the end of the month, that's not very attractive. Suffering through another conversation with your boss that you may not like, that's not very attractive. But nevertheless, the Lord has called us to do certain things to bear the burden of the day. Galatians 6.2, John 13, verse 14 and verse 16. You wash other people's feet. So when we talk about calling... Theologically, there are three kinds of calling in the Bible. God's call of your heart to believe in him and trust in him. God's call to uniquely use your gifts in ways that um, you experience joy and delight. And God's call to serve others even when it may not be something that you particularly like to do. Today I'm going to talk about the second purpose. He calls you to lead lives of love in ways that you are particularly, particularly gifted to do. This kind of calling is often called vocation. The word calling comes from the Anglo-Saxon root. The word vocation comes from the Latin root, vocare, to summon or to call. One person put it like this. Your occupation tells you how you are to provide for the material needs of your life and your family. But vocation tells you a deeper truth. It tells you how you are to provide for the Lord's kingdom. Calling is a deeper dynamic than vocation because it receives from the Lord that drive for us to work for his glory in a way that we are uniquely crafted and gifted to do. It's the expression of our personalities, of our giftings, of our opportunities, and of our experiences. Put all that in a recipe and you discover what your calling is. And for some of us, our calling and our vocation overlap. 
I'm sorry, our calling and our occupation overlap. And blessed is the man and woman whose vocation and occupation overlap. It is amazing. But rarely do our callings, our deep sense of joy and serving, and our occupation overlap. Very rarely is that the case. Paul's calling was what? To send the gospel to the Gentiles, to be an evangelist to the Gentiles. But what was his occupation? He was a maker of tents. Ezekiel was called to be a prophet to all of Israel and Judah. But what was his occupation? His occupation was to be a priest. Or Jesus himself. Jesus' calling was to be the savior of the world. But what was Jesus' occupation? He was a carpenter. And the Bible is fiercely realistic about the nature of work. And that's why sometimes our vocations and our occupations don't overlap. That's why those of us who've been searching for work feel such a tension because you want to do something that you enjoy and you're trying to struggle with doing something that provides for your family. And they don't often overlap. Sometimes work is drudgery. There's not complete overlap in your vocation and your occupation and there's not complete overlap in mine. Sometimes things are just hard and we have to push through them to do them. Even Jesus had to sweep the carpentry floor from time to time. And so also must we. But why do we need to rediscover this notion of calling? We need to rediscover it because it's been lost. And we begin to believe that our occupation or what we do for our employment is our primary and fundamental identity. Christian, it is not. Daniel, in the Old Testament, worked for a pagan king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel was so faithful to Nebuchadnezzar that when Nebuchadnezzar had to, by uh, right of the laws of Babylon, throw him into the lion's den, it put Nebuchadnezzar in a very tight spot because not only did he lose his best worker, but the faithfulness of seeing Daniel in that, con in that situation drew Nebuchadnezzar's heart to believe in Yahweh, the one true God. And later you read in Jeremiah that thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles to whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, Multiply and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you too will find your welfare. In other words, lean in to how I have uniquely created you, both in the age in which I put you and in the place I put you, to use your gifts for my name's sake. And all of Israel, all of Judah, when they were in exile in Babylon, were to lean in. The Bible assumes that there is this deep dynamic that takes in your gifts and your experiences and your talents, and he wants you to use those for his kingdom. Somewhere along the fourth century, however, this got confused. Bishop of Caesarea 
whose name was Eusebius at the time, came up with this, this idea that there are two forms of love and life in the world. One form of love and life is the perfect life, the perfect love. That belonged to people like me, the clergy. That was the perfect life. And then he had a second kind of life he called the permitted life in the fourth century. The rest of you who just had jobs. <laughs> and he created this idea that there's the perfected life of the clergy and there's the permitted life of the laity. And this idea stuck all the way through medieval Roman Catholic history until the Reformation. And in the Reformation, one of the most amazing things about it, one scholar has said, were the three truths one, the doctrine of justification by faith. Two, the authority of God's word. And three, vocation. And this third movement through the Reformation was the most practical because it had to do with everyday life. In fact, Martin Luther says, don't be a monk or a priest unless you understand the notion of calling. For the preacher in the pulpit has no higher calling than the farmer in the fields or the housewife going about her tasks in the farmhouse. Luther was the one who said that non-ecclesial, non-churchy vocations are beautiful and right and just as holy as those who are called to ministry or who are missionaries. They're holy unto the Lord. In fact, when the doctrine of vocation came over into Europe, especially in northern Europe, in Holland, the Dutch Calvinists in Holland locked their church doors on Sunday because people gathered around the church and their lives centered around the church and the pastors of the church in the Netherlands said, we are locking the doors to teach you how to go and live out your callings over the course of the week in your jobs. You're invited to areas in your place of work where I will never be invited. And you're called to be able to live lives of integrity, to live lives of joy in those callings and in those situations in ways that only you can contribute to. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the amazing thing about Christianity. It doesn't, it doesn't ask you to change your giftings or it actually says use those particular giftings in ways that help you help the kingdom flourish. But by the 19th century, the barons of industry began to use the word calling to underpay their employees. So some of you have jobs and some of you have callings. And those of you who have callings do it because you're called to do it. And they would underpay them. We, we, sometimes we feel this today, don't we? We say, we say nurses have a calling. Physicians who don't practice in a lucrative field but go as missionaries they have a calling or we might say teachers teachers have a calling right we do the same thing we tend to associate calling with the un, with the with the underpaid professions but that's not what the bible understands calling as today if we are to have some kind of cultural impact for the kingdom we must return to the biblical notion of calling as his faithful and wise stewards who then is faithful and wise, whom his master has set over his household? Matthew 24. Verse 26, blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing his will when he comes. All right. Do you know what your calling is? 
not your job, your calling. My calling, I think, is very simple. It has been with me for decades that my job is to equip others to serve him in ways that they are uniquely gifted. Whether I'm a pastor, before I was in seminary and I was a teacher, everything about, everything I've ever done is to help others become more self-aware of their gifts and then to give them a platform to use those gifts and get out of the way. That's my calling. It drives almost everything that I do. And the greatest joy I have in my job, frankly, is sitting with somebody and helping them think about how are they uniquely gifted. Not because they can serve Trinity, but how can they uniquely find their own voice in the world? Oh, it's so fun for me to do that. And some of you I've sat down with and we've talked about that together. Frederick Buechner wrote in a little book called Wishful Thinking that the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And then he goes on to explain how. And he says, first, you look up at opportunity. And you ask the question, where does the community around me tell me that I am needed? What are your opportunities? Which means you can't discover your calling filling out a spiritual gifts inventory. Not completely. The community has to be there to help you understand it, to show you opportunities of how you can use your gifts. Where is the opportunity? You have to look up. Secondly, you have to look at your abilities. What are my abilities and my deficiencies? Because for as godly as some of you may be, godliness does not always overcome deficiencies in gifting. You do not want me leading worship for you, ever. No matter how much I may try to attain to it, I, those gifts I struggle with, musical gifts and instrument. What are your abilities? We may want to be good leaders. We may want to serve in some capacity, but you're always late. You're not a good time manager. You have to be honest about that and grow in it. You have to have the skills necessary to grow. You may want to lead a community group, but frankly, you, you, don't, um, you don't really enjoy large groups of people. You don't really gather them very well. You're probably great to be there, but you may not be the community group leader who can gather them. You may not like to open your home to other people because you just feel like it's too invasive. That's okay. You may not lead with the gift of hospitality, even though we should be opening our homes to people. That may not be your gift. That's okay. But what is yours? What are your unique abilities that you have? Third, you have to look out. What do you have an affinity for? What needs in Owasso and in Tulsa do you gravitate toward? What do you resonate with? What kinds of visions move you to want to get involved? We want to be able to be in ministry, to be a faithful presence. We want to be in ministry in areas that we are uniquely gifted. You have to look up to see the opportunities. You have to look uh, in to be able to see your own abilities. And you have to look out to see what affinities that you have. Opportunity, ability, affinity. When those three things come together, you're beginning to be on the right track. 
And if you want to explore this more in the Digging Deeper sections of your Roots Journal this week, I encourage you to read that article by Tim Keller and to lean in to the questions at the end to ask yourself, how can I understand the way I am uniquely called better? What is calling? It is the deep dynamic that undergirds everything that you do. What has happened to it? It has been taken captive by the culture, and we are trying to revive it in the church to help it drive us in our vocations, which may change over time, but your calling does not. And it is living into your calling that will allow you to experience the deep joy in serving and in being Christ's hands and feet to other people. How do we find it? We've said, you look up, you look in, you look out. Fourthly, what does our calling give us? Our calling gives us first a sense of wholeness. It provides a sense of continuity and firmness when you are faced with multiple choices. And if you do not understand your calling, you will be strung out and you will get burned out, you will be fragmented and you will be exhausted because there are so many options. Never more true is that than today. How many times have we overcommitted to things that we may not have, we sh probably should not have committed to because that was not how we were gifted. That was not what our calling was. It provides a sense of wholeness to help you. Your job is your external circumstances, but your calling is what you give your heart to. It's so important for us to realize that. I feel that tension, and I know you do too. Not only does it give you a sense of wholeness, but it gives you a sense of single-mindedness. It teaches you how to say the amazing words, no. <laughs> Will you do this? I can't. Not right now. It helps you become single-minded. It helps you find a pace of life in the midst of the pressures and the tyranny of the urgent that is sustainable. You're not, you're not, um, otherwise you're going to be torn apart by a lot of good options unless you understand what is the great option to choose for you. What is the one excellent thing that you are called to do? And if that is it, then do it with all of your mind and body and spirit and life. Lean into it. Proverbs 15, 21 says, Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight to his goal. In other words, a fool finds at the end of his month he has wandered about doing a thousand things, none of them very well. But a man who is wise goes straight for his goal because he knows what he's been called to do. What will Jesus find us doing when he comes again? Will he find us tending to our calling for his glory's sake? Or will he find us strung out? The reason, friends, why we have community groups is not because we want you to get to know each other merely. It's because by pouring into each other, you come to understand your unique callings better. I would not be in ministry today if people had not told me over the course of my young life, Blake, you should consider going into ministry. I never wanted to be in ministry, friends. Never. But it was the consistent call of people in my life pushing me and encouraging me to do it where I finally relented, not to my own desire for an occupation, but to the Lord's call for me to go into ministry. And it was very clear to me, though painful, 
but it provided a deep sense of joy in my life that could never be reduplicated in another field. Sometimes the way you know your calling is when you respond to somebody, that's why I get out of bed in the morning. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What is your calling? It may be as a mom or a dad for the season of life, full of drudgery as oftentimes our roles as parents might be. But what is your unique calling? Do you know it? And would you use your Roots Journal this week to help explore that question more and more and more? In a book that's written not by a Christian, and with this I'll wrap up, it's written by a secular um, man. I don't even know what his faith is, but he writes... Um, a book about how do people resist pressure. And it, the book is very insightful because he basically says there are three ways that people resist pressure. They have counter values, they have a counter community, and they have a powerful sense of why they are and where they are. So if we put this into a Christian context, you have a counter sense of values. Christ and his word gives us the counter values. You have the counter community. The church is to be our counter community together, but that's not enough. You have to have a powerful sense of why you exist and where you are, just like yellow and pink, asking those questions together so that you can be a man of wholeness, a woman of single-mindedness, and you can be a person who has integrity, they're consistent with the way the Lord has made them. If you don't understand these concrete things, then your Christian life is going to be very idealistic. And it's going to put you on the edge of burnout. And just like you've heard today, we all have to hold the rope together at Trinity to keep worship going. And the reason why we're doing this Roots campaign is to help us to have a place where we can all settle into our unique callings, where we cannot use our energy with the drudgery of setup, but actually go out to love and serve our neighbors, to be incarnational like Christ himself is incarnational for you and for me. And that power gives us the ability to do that. Christ himself was the one who pressed on in his calling. When he left his carpentry shop, his calling was to, was to go and to give up his life for you and for me, to win you and me. And his occupation, for, the, for lack of a better word, was a criminal's sentence to die on a cross. And yet he pushed through it because of his sense of calling and a sense of love for you and for me. And this idea of calling for us as a church is an aspect of our offense that we have not fully engaged in even our seven years together. Because it takes a lot of effort for us to know each other and shepherd each other and help us understand what are we uniquely called to. And the Roots journey is just the beginning to help us in that process. Read that article this week, would you? And as you read it, look to your Savior, the one who will come like a thief in the night. Will he find you doing the things that he has given you to do as stewards over his house? Or will he find you squandering the time he has given you to live? And then look at Christ, the one who came for you in grace and says, sometimes it's hard to know what our calling is, but I'm with you. I'm with you in my word. I'm with you in the community. 
and I draw with you now as you prepare to come to the Lord's table. Friends, let's rediscover our calling together. And knowing our calling will strengthen us to then be able to transform our families, this community, and this area because we are called with single-minded devotion and confidence to do that which we know the Lord has called us to do and to be ready when he returns. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to know that you have called us in a unique way, each one of us, many members of one body. Would you help us, Lord, to look at the opportunities? Would you help us to examine our own affinities? And would you help us to look, Father, at those around us who can help us understand where we are most needed and what our abilities are. Thank you, Jesus, that you endured the incarnation, the drudgery of the incarnation, which was so much worse than the most drudgery kind of work we could possibly do. Oh, Father, and you loved us. You gave up your son for us. Jesus, you endured the life that we could not live. You lived a life we could not lead so that you might help us to find our calling. Would you help us to do that, we pray, whatever we may be called to do. Pastor, physician, engineer, school teacher, whatever it is you've called us to do, Lord, may we be driven by our deepest callings. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.